So what are the blind spots that prevent people from being able to see that? I think the blind spots are most positioning strategy starts with an internal dialogue and it starts with a competitive dialogue and it needs to start with a customer dialogue. I think it's as simple as that is if you ask your customers where you provide the most value, they will tell you exactly. And they will tell you by role and goal and market segment, but we often don't ask. We spend a lot of time in groups internally defining our positioning, and then we do a competitive matrix. And those are both important inputs, but you know, the single most important way to position is what am I, what would my customers say is the differentiated value I provide? It's interesting because uh, so often status management seems to be the priority instead of uh, you know, solving for the customer's outcome. And what I struggle with, and in fact, you know, it's become something of a bugbear for this podcast. Why is it when all the evidence is fucking clear, I mean, without putting too fine a point on it, that creating hell on earth to work in, bullying people, creating false urgency switches off the clever bits of the seller's brain and creates a catalytic effect in the buyer's brain of creating disgust and contempt. And you burn through cash like it's someone else's money. Then you claim you're serving shareholders and their best interests, none of which is true. It just seems to be an opportunity for a bunch of psychopaths to bully people and make out like bandits and then blame everybody else when everything turns to shit. Have I misread it? Because I, I feel like I'm just the, the, you know, the mad uncle that's drunk at a wedding, muttering to myself. <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of levels to unpack there, but I think we talked a little bit about this on the Sassholes podcast. I mean, the human brain has a couple of big handicaps, right, in terms of actually being customer-centric. The first, And this is like people a lot smarter than me have documented this, is, you know, we focus on ourselves first. We focus on a conclusion first, right? So one is we, we're self-centered. Two is we're not information-seeking, right? We start with a conclusion and find evidence to support that conclusion. And three is to the extent that we're move beyond self-centered, we're often tribal. We're looking for reinforcement from a specific group of peers. So around positioning strategy, right? One and two are a problem, but three is, okay, now I'm looking for approval from my executive, others on the executive team. I'm looking to be the smartest person in the room when the consultant is there, the branding consultant is there. So, right, it's like I'm getting sucked into this small group behavior that, doubles down on my problem number one and problem number two, which is I haven't actually asked the person that I serve how they want to be served. (laughs) So the whole thing is off track. And so, you know, a lot of the work we do with go-to-market teams, I mean, it it really selling 3.0, go-to-market 3.0, it's really about mindset. You win when you have the right mindset. You have to actively say, I'm starting with the wrong mindset. I'm going to be drawn always back to thinking about myself, starting with a conclusion, being influenced by others, you know, in my peer group. You got to just be aware of that. And so build behaviors and processes that force me to continually go back to an other oriented posture, a service posture, 
which says, I got to learn from my customers and buyers what they care about. And then I got to serve them. And that will lead to a better outcome for me, by the way, if I serve them right. first. Surely a really good KPI is to have a constructive conflict conversation with your customer. Where Interesting. you go in and have a genuine adult-to-adult conversation with yeah. the express intent of both sides improving or deciding it's time to part. But again, being ready to have those conversations. I think that would be a really interesting KPI. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it actually is a you know the intentional conversation. So a good example of what you described, we're doing some work with a company called School Status K twelve kind of um, you know it's it's a communication and analytics platform, right? It helps drive student outcomes by the right patterns of communication with parents. They have a really talented VP of CS who their uh, dashboard, account health dashboard, has kind of the standard KPIs about engagement and number of users and like that. But they also, there's a qualitative metric around the, what a lot of people call QBRs of the business review. But did you come back to the the customer goal? And did you ask their level of satisfaction with that goal? Did you get those two things out of the call? To your point, that good customer account management, good customer sex management is always resetting on how are we doing relative to the goals we set? Are there gaps in that that we need to remedy? On the other hand, if we've achieved what you try, we're hoping to do number the first goal you're working on, should we start exploring a second one that will extend value? So, you know, it's in trusted advisors language used a lot in sales, but equally relevant in customer success, right? Uh, Even even more relevant. I don't think you should be separating the two because as far as the customer is concerned, it's one company. And the fact that they're constantly thrown over the wall to someone else who says it's not my job is a source of constant frustration. We've forgotten that we exist because of the customer. They're not an inconvenience. Whilst you know, we, we may treat them as such, then I think one of my favorite quotes comes from my pal, uh, Amy Woodall, uh, which is that uh, the customer's often wrong, and when they are, it's often our fault. <laughs> and t- too often, we just point the finger instead of just challenging our own assumptions. I'm learning that more and more in my personal life as well, depressingly. I had an interesting conversation uh, with a guy named Roderick Jefferson recently, who's written a book about why you need to shift from sales operations to field operations on exactly your point. Rod's a good friend of mine, but we coach one another. Excellent. Yeah, he's a great guy. And I've started to use that term field operations consistently because it's the right idea, right? I mean, his point is that everything, every internal process has to now serve your buyer. It's not about your internal motion. And so to your point, like that handoff, there shouldn't be from the buyer's point of view, there shouldn't be buyer into customer, shouldn't be any difference. You should be talking about the same areas of value, the same points of alignment. I mean, it should be seamless for them. This comes back to the major problem that um, you do what you're measured on, basically. And at the end of every quarter, they create the conditions where you switch off the clever bit of the salespeople's brain 
by creating a do or die kind of environment because everyone knows that at the end of the quarter, someone's going to be cut. So that switches off their prefrontal cortex, which is where language, reason, and logic reside. And then you put them out into the field with your customers at a delicate stage in the conversation, and you create a full sense of urgency that the customer knows is manufactured because they don't give a damn about your timetable or your valuation. And in doing that, you trigger the insular succumbence, which is where contempt and disgust reside. I just don't see how any of that serves the customer, the company, the rep, or anybody in the food chain. Yeah, you're saying the incentives are misaligned to actually being buyer-centric. They're 180 degrees from that. They are intentionally ineffective. You look at virtually every sales and marketing motion, they have failure rates north of 95, 97, 99%. And that's considered acceptable. And no one seems to be asking the bloody obvious question, is there a better way? And inevitably, there is. Because if you're failing 97% of the time, there's a really good clue that maybe your thinking's askew, mm. isn't it? Curious what, uh, uh, just to hear a little bit more about the metrics that you think are failing 95 to 97% of the time. Cold calling, cold email, outreach, content, advertising. Uh, yeah, advertising has click-through rates. Do you know there are 3.4 quadrillion, that's 16 zeros of digital adverts that get served up every year by Google, Amazon, and Facebook, where they charge customers $265 billion a year, and those ads get zero or one click. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if, if I were going to pose the opposite, which is a lot of that investment is just sort of building awareness, right? I mean, building brand, building awareness. And I'll just tell an anecdote from our own business, which is when we did a, built a content strategy, including LinkedIn ads around, starting to build that around our content. Attribution is hard, but we saw a fairly significant shift in 12 months from our new sales qualified leads being generated from outbound activity and outbound networking to inbound where both past clients moving on to a new organization or referring mm -hmm. to appear in a new organization or you know venture investors that are just a lot more people just making inbound referrals to us for because they knew what we did based on investment in content and advertising and nothing else shifted. I mean, the product didn't shift, the success stories didn't shift. I mean, we just made a very concerted effort to build a brand through social and ads and it worked. And so you could argue, and, and we do some of this work with our clients. We say, hey, look, you know, if you get a 3% hit rate on a sequence, you're going to 500 people, you get 15 meetings. That's a great outcome. What you want to do is design your sequence in a way that it's value added to them. You want to raise questions for them to be thinking about. You want to be putting in stories about your, your customers that they might relate to. You want to share value added blogs because vast majority of people aren't going to engage. But what you want them to think is, 
these people have provided some value when they reach back the next time and I'm, maybe I have more readiness that you, you might be ready to engage. I worked with a guy who was with HubSpot when HubSpot was blown up and I worked with him in a company called Mainstay, but they had a metric at HubSpot, which was that the average buyer took 2.2 sales cycles to close. In other words, the time frame to educate buyer, you know, like people on average, their customers, they were closing. They had a really easy to adopt product that was priced well. They had an amazing brand and they still had an environment where they would go through one sales process. No, something would keep people moving forward. Another sales process? No, simply somewhere into the third on average is when people would close. So I guess there's just so much customer education that has to happen. Content and advertising is the way to do it. And I think you can do that in a value added way. That would be kind of my counterfactual. And I absolutely accept that. My question is, what if as you demonstrated in your prelim to that, if you go warm and the person being referred trusts the person referring and the person in the middle, so the go-between is trusted by both buyer and seller, and you apply the same approach, you apply content, but with those individuals in mind, now you have a significantly higher hit rate. So the thesis is sell hot, not cold. It's not that those motions don't work. I, I know plenty of organizations that have done fantastically well by adopting those approaches. However, the human cost is massive. The waste is astronomical. When you think about the head count turnover that happens within most sales organizations, it's criminal. The destruction of people's egos, careers, and career paths, uh, and mental health, I think is a price that's very heavy, many pay and, on, and only a few benefit from. So my, my challenge to this is, well, what if you can apply those strategies, those tactics, but in a hot environment and within an ecosystem environment where people have a duty of care to one another? Yeah, I mean, I think your instinct is dead on what we are in a world where spray and pray doesn't work at all for all the reasons you've alluded to. And it also is not good for your team. This kind of high volume churn and burn through leads, just pumping out stuff. And so the current, you know, kind of prospecting or demand gen environment very much lends itself to the idea of, you know, slow down to speed up, focus on less with more quality, and you will actually get a better result. And something we talk a lot about is how do you build personalization at scale? And that's a little bit oxymoronic, but the reality is you hit on, we think of two key strategies and you hit on one of the most important, which is if you think about your content themes and you're telling stories about value to specific buyers based on goal, you know, things you can help them accomplish, a goal they have, or based on a role, or it could be segment, you will get a lot more engagement and it will be valuable. So you have to think about what is my story about value to the different buyers I serve? You know, it's not that hard. And there are some AI programs that can help, like just to personalize your outreach. So in, if you think about a sequence and we, we work with clients, we just build a personalization 
postulate that is something related to that you've seen in their website or their business plan or a recent LinkedIn post that is just nesting into that why you're reaching out, some kind of hook that that personalizes and says, hey, look, you know, I'm not just spamming you. I'm actually trying to link to something I think you're working on. Did I get that right? And can we have a conversation? And you know, we've seen that can increase by fivefold that personalization, your return, and it's an upfront investment, but definitely worth it. Excellent. So my guest today is Brent Keltner. Brent is the president of Winalytics, and he's also the author of a very fine book called The Revenue Acceleration Playbook. I recommend it because the emphasis that Brent takes is that you have to build everything from the customer out. The moment you forget that, then you've forgotten why you exist. And if we're being blunt, everything starts to go horribly south after that because you start becoming siloed, you become disconnected, the customer's experience becomes a merry hell. And only a few uh, leave uh, like bandits, the rest end up having to pick up the pieces. So we're going to be exploring a bunch of really interesting stuff today. Brent, welcome. Marcus, glad to be here. It's our second conversation. Met on a colleague's podcast a couple of months back, and that was an awesome conversation. So looking forward to the conversation today. Me too. So uh, Brent, would you mind giving maybe 90 seconds on your history so people understand your background and um, why you're qualified to have the conversation we're about to? Yeah, so I'm very unconventional uh, background for a revenue leader, a revenue consultant. I was trained as a PhD social scientist. I spent 10 years at Stanford and the Rand Corporation doing qualitative research. I was good at bringing dollars in the door, grants and contracts, and so eventually went over to work in at Kaplan, going over to higher, for-profit higher education business. Was not trained in classical marketing or selling, but what I had to do at, at, at Edge of it, at Rand, was figure out how to get busy executives engaged, like how to make a, have conversations that were all about what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. why they wanted to talk to me, why they wanted to keep talking to me. So when I went over to the dark side, as academics said, at first at Kaplan and then at Edgy Ventures and then at CollegiaLink and so on, I looked at the way people were classically trained to sell, which was all about them and their product and their successes and the negotiation and the close plan. And I said, this is stupid. I can teach you a different way, which is all about just anchoring on your buyer and what matters most to them. And how do we use that to build deal momentum. So I had four quick growth successes and then turned it into a consultancy. And and the approach, our approach is what you said well, Marcus, is that if you want to do good marketing and you want to do good selling, you have to focus on your buyer and customer first and how you position and then how you run your sales conversations and you will win faster. Okay. So Brent, let's start with the million dollar question and just hit the audience between the eyes. How can you help them to realize that they don't understand their customer and that they are too internally and selfishly focused and not customer focused. Even though they may talk a good talk, uh, what's the evidence that they should be looking for to prove that either they are or are not customer focused in everything that they do think and act? Yeah, so two, two quick things people can do in terms of their own audit on that is first, take whatever positioning framework you have right, in terms of your key differentiators and value points. And just, can you find two or three customer quotes that say that is a value to them? 
So I would encourage them to take their positioning and map specific customer stories and specific customer outcomes to that. Because if a customer hasn't told you it's valuable, it's not valuable. Even though That's, it's my ugly baby. And I think it's- Even really though it's my ugly baby, even though the leadership team has agreed that this is how we can crush the competitors. What, what, what if it's a line item on the budget? <laughs> same, same refrain. If your customers haven't told you it's valuable, uh, it's not. It's not valuable. You may be off track, and I think there's a, you know, as you get better at that, then you want to start thinking not about all customers, but your ideal customers. Your customers that have been with you the longest, spent the most, have already started a referral. What's valuable for them? So that's number one. Second audit you can do is just look at your website, and can your buyers see themselves on your website based on what the goals they're trying to accomplish? Based on their role, we all sell to multiple different personas. Can they can they see, can that persona see themselves on the website? And then often there's segment differentiation, right? So can your buyers see themselves in content and stories that are valuable to them on your website based on their goals, roles, and market segments? If the answer to both of those questions is an unequivocal yes, you got work to do on your positioning strategy. Okay. So that then brings us very neatly to the next awkward question, which is how does one get unbiased answers from buyers and from uh, non-buyers who could be buyers? Because the temptation is when we go and interview customers, they don't really want to be disliked. So they give us stuff that they think we want to hear. What advice would you give to someone who has realized that maybe they don't have a great grasp of who their customer is and they want to get into conversation with people who can give them that unbiased insight. Yeah, and you actually in our pre-call outlined, I think what is uh, what, what, what you need to do is it's, you set it up as an intentional conversation and in your email outreach and in your preamble to the call, you're basically saying, hey, we're looking to speak with folks who can tell us where we're providing value or where we may be missing, where there's some specific opportunities for improvement. My experience is customers in any sector like to have that conversation. So you just have to set it up as, hey, this isn't a testimonial for us. This is really more of a, you know, kind of peer conversation around what's working and what's not working. And is that's not with existing customers? I, personally, we encourage it. existing customers first will often help sharpen it. But then if you want to go back to your loss, kind of late stage loss column and ask, I mean, those people are much harder to engage. But if you present it as kind of a thought partnership conversation in terms of, you know, what we're seeing, new, new developments around those areas of value we talked about, would love to just get some feedback from you as we build our next roadmap. What did you see that you liked? Where did we miss? And you have to present it as, this is just a, you know, it's not a commercial conversation. It's an opportunity for learning on both sides about what went well, what could have gone better. Okay. So again, this requires a temporal shift in perspective because when people are fixated on this month, this quarter, and maybe they can stretch to next, they're not really thinking beyond that, which means that they're operating in a reactive frame. They are 
short term in their thinking, so their objective is to make this quarter's quota, then they'll do things that might bend their values a little. Uh, how do we create the conditions where people instead would see that as anathema and put the customer first, make buyer safety central? Yeah, I think so. There's two separate questions in that. And I'll take the first, I think, is a sort of implied question. Then I'll go to your second one. I think there's a role distinction we need to make as well. Like, I wouldn't have salespeople have these conversations. The folks that should be having these conversations are in product marketing or customer success, more strategic members of your customer success team that are good at deepening value. They're the ones that should be going back to past customers or potentially lost customers and having that conversation about what, where, are we, where are we doing well, where aren't we doing well on value. That's, a, I think, a better way than having your salespeople sort of capture the customer voice. So that's one thought. But on your other thought, I, I do think you can, you, you, I think you're, the point you're making that incentives can either be short term or they can get help us to think about enterprise value, both for the customer and for the company. I do think there's two shifts that companies can make on incentives that are quite helpful and better align departments. The, the first is when you think about prospecting or SDR demand generation teams, you don't just reward them for any SQL, right? You create some criteria around an ideal customer SQL, and you reward them based on a mix of activity plus the quality of that activity. So what's being handed over to the sales team is a better fit. And then on the sales side, you can create reward structures. In the book we write about, you know, Mark Roberge did this at HubSpot. There's also a story with Ben Robinson at Zeal where a sales team members were incented to think about enterprise value. So they might close on one thing the buyer cared about, but in the course of discovery, they surfaced three or four, which then a CS or an account management team member would close and they would get some reward for those closes in the 12 months. In both cases, it had a dramatic impact both on customer satisfaction as well as on ACV, because what you're saying is like, you know, we want to have a long expanded relationship at the right time. We want to expand at the right time. You don't have to close it all in the first go round. So this is really interesting because that's very close to the model of the first time irresistible offer of the likes of Craig Andrews and Alex Formosi. But it also speaks to another really interesting point, which is that when we talk about salespeople, very often we talk about the difference between hunters and farmers. Another analogy that I like, which is uh, that of gardeners. So this is someone who curates a small patch. They're not trying to do the volume. What they're trying to do is create the most excellent garden. So they have a medium to long-term pipeline focus. They're never trying to close anything in a hurry. The objective is to uh, nurture the garden, water it, till it, you know, weed it. And so you're constantly working with different parts of the organization. And you're mapping and trying to align with the buyer's journey and meeting the buyer where they are, not where your leadership team wants them. And you've got to be ready to get fired for that because the danger is you probably will. So you've got to find a way of building your medium-term pipeline up quickly 
so that it very quickly becomes your short-term pipeline. Now, how do we create the conditions as managers and as leaders so that salespeople can shift their thinking and their behavior like that? Two things. One is you, you can change the incentives, right, to reward this enterprise value. The second is honestly just a very simple skill that is undertaught, which is asking your buyer to prioritize, right? We, you know, we've talked about three or four things, talked with your leadership group, three or four things. If there's one thing, you know, that you absolutely need to accomplish in the next 60 days, if there's one place you'd want to start with us, um, because I think it's important, those medium term wins are important, but you know, good selling, you got to find the things that you're going to take off the table today. And you have to be able to laser into those. So this ability to say, hey, you know, don't need everything today. It sounds like we're going to start here. But I've noted these other two areas that maybe you and I will come back to, or maybe you'll come back to with an account management team. That ability to prioritize and think about phasing in relationships has just become key in the current environment. This then comes back to, and I know you talk about this in the book of, you know, the trusted advisor role. In order to become and earn the right of being a trusted advisor, what are the qualities you as a seller must exhibit to the buyer and over what period? The number one quality that you need to exhibit is being able to recap the important parts of your conversations with them. You need to say it back to them verbally. You need to put in follow-up emails. I heard you say, I understand this is your priority. This is what I shared, how we could help. This is, uh, these are the things we each agreed to do next and we'll meet on whatever date. So recapping like prioritization, I mean, good selling is all just recapping what they're most focused on to make sure I'm not assuming. Recap and next steps and no assumptions. Recap and next steps. So it's all about what buyer value. What do they value? Buyer personalization. What parts of my product and only the parts of my product that are relevant to them. Buyer actions, right? What will they do next? And so just recapping what you're showing is I listened. I care. I'm focused on you individually. If you get good at that, I mean, prioritization comes out of it naturally. And honestly, you should do that in every conversation. There is a um, executive that I've worked with over three companies in eight, eight years, and he will always tell the story of when we first started working together. And he had several sales consultants and methodology companies. The reason he picked me was after every meeting, I recapped what we had agreed to, what we would do next, including what actions he had agreed to take with his CEO to get to a decision. It was that simple thing. It was like, this guy's just guiding me forward to what's the value in the partnership. Very and quick way to build trust and build value. Well, uh, Charlie Green came up with the whole uh, trusted advisor concept, talks about trust being made up of reliability mm. plus credibility plus intimacy over self-orientation. So we're long-term selfish. So I got that one from Charlie. I believe he got that one from a former uh, Goldman Sachs uh, CEO before they turned bad. Then he also makes the point that intimacy is the most important operator in that equation because the table stakes are credibility and reliability. You expect every vendor to be able to do what they say they can and then to damn well do it. That's the, the, the uh, what Simon Bowen refers to as the I should bloody hope so line. 
You know, that's the minimum expectation. Um, mm. But the intimacy piece is the hard one because to get intimacy, you have to create the conditions where people are willing to share confidences and be vulnerable. Now, very few salespeople do that well. And their management creates the conditions where they're psychologically poorly disposed to do that well. So what message would you send out to the audience? On creating intimacy? Yeah. There are two things that uh, we think about. One is, you know, and I, this trusted advisor, I think a colloquial way of saying that is, you know, people buy from people they like. That's still true, right, in this digital environment. Um, I think there's two ways you can create intimacy. One we just talked about, which is if everybody likes to talk about themselves and they like to hear va feel validated. So if you're really good at just, this is what I heard you say, when I'm, you will create intimacy. People say he cares about me personally. But the second thing you can do is, you know, just find any points of personal connection. If you grew up in the same part of the world or, you know, I, I, an example I shared recently is a, a woman who's was going off to be a hockey mom for the weekend, you know, gra hockey grandma for the weekend. So when I followed up with her, I was just like, hey, how was a hockey grandma weekend, right? <laughs> is create points of connection about people in their life. You know, if I was selling you, I would show up and ask you a bunch of questions about that question mark before we got in anything behind you. <laughs> right. And like, where, where did you get it? Why did it appeal to you? I'm curious about people and I would damn sure come back to it. Right. And so you can, and, and not in a disingenuous way, but be interested in those people as a person, remember those things that are valuable to them and you will create a lot of intimacy. And for those of you who listened to my second ever podcast with Mark Goulston, who's a longstanding mentor of mine, you'll remember that he always makes the point of be interested, not interesting. And the challenge yeah. is it's so hard to not throw in your tuppence worth. I'm terrible for it. But what's really fascinating is the quality of the information that you gather and the uh, level of compassion that you can build when you are genuinely interested and curious in another human being. Um, do you have any research on the impact of that change on performance? I, I don't know that. I don't know that I do. Okay, I mean, so everyone listening, if you do have research on that, I would love to have it. I'm sure Brent would as well. Uh, I, I absolutely, yeah. So we'll give out his contact details at the end. Um, but but on that, before we go to the next topic, the, the phrase that I like, I love is. You can't learn anything when you're speaking. Yeah. If you're it's listening, like, you're probably losing. I love that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've never listened my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of far, far too many. That's interesting. I, I had an old client of mine, Bessie Donaldson, on, and she's transitioned from being a recruiter to being a deep listening coach. And she made a really interesting observation that active listening is the uh, basically kills real listening because people tend to turn it into a tactic and a technique. How can people modify their behavior and stop trying to, you know, when a playbook becomes dogma, when your sales methodology becomes a straitjacket, 
then it loses its veracity and power because that's not how real human beings buy. You know, a playbook is a song sheet. Uh, you interpret that song in your own way. Uh, you apply technique, theoretically, as a shield, not a weapon. But the, I, I see very often listening uh, as a tactic is used almost as a bludgeon to beat people. How can people get good at real listening? You've said really well what a playbook is. It's We often talk about frameworks. It's not a script, right? It's everybody's going to have their own voice and own style. And that's an important point. I think what we encourage that in good listening is if you just think about this cadence of you ask questions so you can make sure that you, you're seeking to understand. So you recap to make sure you understood. And then the opportunity for further kind of clarification from their side, right? So that your whole point of listening is to understand what's valuable to your buyer or your customer. And so I think we always encourage, like thinking about every meeting is in three parts. The first is we call it value discovery. It's just spending time on what's most valuable to your buyer or customer. Before talking about your company and your product, you're going to want to recap. I, I heard you say you're working on ABC. Did I hear that correctly? Or would you say that differently? We, then we talk about value personalization right in the middle. And one of the keys there is you, people got to stop thinking about a product demo or discussion. They should think about micro presentations, right? Is every time you share some part of your product, it's because you heard something. I understand you're working on X, so I want to show how we adjust it. You, you stop at the end with, hey, companies like you know X and Y, like you, have used it in this way. Did you know? Would this solve the problem we talked about? How would you think about applying that? So you stop two or three times anytime you're talking about your product to just see if your buyer is confirming that there's any value in what you're doing, and then we end with the questions around kind of next next steps. And this is where you can go, you know, you can play slightly dumb and uh, be a little bit confused and say, I wonder, you know, imagine we could, or just suppose, you know, you, you don't have to talk about your product. All you're doing is testing the ground to see whether or not it's something that they have curiosity to explore further. Part of the problem is because we're, um, everything seems to be so urgent and uh, everything is working towards deadlines. And th those are important, I think. But the problem is that when you overemphasize those, then the customer's outcome is subsumed to your valuation or your quota or your whatever. So the customer becomes a forgotten afterthought. And I'd be very curious about how you can create a playbook for an organization, not just sales, because it's not just sales that touches the customer. Finance does, operations does, the product people do, marketing does, and logistics does. All of these people add to or detract from the experience the customer has and touches the customer at different stages in the buying journey. Almost no salesperson that I've ever known could describe the buying journey apart from the little bit where they touch them. How do we get the playbooks to encompass the whole buying journey and encompass the whole company so we start, we start moving together towards the customer's outcome?
Yeah, it's a great, you know, sort of setup for if I'm going to pitch our approach in the book is we always say our engagements always start with this idea of building value plays or value narratives right at the beginning of the engagement. And that's something you need, you know, cross go-to-market leadership, including potentially product to, hey, let's build our stories about buyer value based on, you know, our cap- we, we talk about capability stories, customer stories, customer you know, success stories, outcome stories. Let's build those stories for how we provide value based on the buyer goals, roles, and market segment. Because if you build those at the outset, then you can build team level playbooks for marketing and the website, for prospecting and demand gen, for sales, for account management, for CS, that all align to the same way of expressing value and buying, engaging buyers with customers, uh, engaging customers and uh, buyers around value. So you need a set of value playbooks that sit across the entire go-to-market team and, and product. You need to agree to those is, I think, just something everybody should be aware of. If you're letting individual departments do that, you have a huge problem. That's one thought. The other thought, just to tactically going back to a comment you made on sellers, one of the things that I would say in the, in terms of good questioning, every really strong seller I've ever met has some version of a success, more successful future question that sounds something like, hey, if we were to work together you know, in six or 12 months, what would be the win that you'd want to see? What would be the difference that you'd want to see? If I were to wave a magic wand, what kind of improvement or KPI change would make you a hero to your boss? What would get you to do the touchdown dance and who would you be doing the dance with? I've had to stop using the magic wand because they keep imagining me in a tutu. uh, (laughs) It's Uh, more of a female question for sure. (laughs) Well, it, it puts them off then next meal. So this is really interesting. Tell me a little bit more about these value plays and value narratives. Can give us some examples? So we talked about school status earlier. So let's continue with school status. You know, so a lot of their value is around communicating around specific student outcomes that a district is trying to improve. It might be around enrollment, right? Students now can go to charter schools, they can go to private schools, there's an enrollment challenge. It might be around attendance. You know, budgets are linked to daily attendance. It might be related to academic performance, keeping kids on track. It might be related to uh, bilingual homes, right? Which is big growth in that, how you communicate with them. So for each of those, if you think about a value play, it's really around, okay, what questions would I ask to guide somebody to thinking about those outcomes? Which are the top priorities? What are they trying to improve? What's keeping them from improving? So we have good discovery around those areas of value. And then the other side is, And if I was going to tell a story about how we helped improve average daily attendance, what are the customer stories I would tell? What's the before and after, before they were struggling to see where attendance was off track or what was driving it? What's the before and after and what's the result? What was the improvement? And can I put those improvements into some kind of consistent outcome story? On average, we bump daily attendance by 5%. On average, we increase enrollments by 2% or 10 kids per school or whatever it is. So you really, those value plays are a consistent set of questions that any 
team member could ask to unlock value. And then it's a consistent way of messaging our capabilities around a before and after, and then with some evidence around uh, customer stories. Okay, so let's build on the, the existing customer because that's where the bulk of the profit is, the easier to sell to if you're doing it right. So as someone is developing their playbook and they're looking for the best expansion potential accounts, what advice would you give initially to identify where the best opportunities for the medium to long-term lie and how can they start initiating those points of contact with maybe their dream 20 accounts? Yeah, so it's a great question. And a lot of expansion is people know the idea of white space, right? Is we've worked with them on these products and not these products. So now when you have those value plays in place, often there are different personas connected with different products. So the school status example, you know, enrollment people on the admission side are different from people that are kind of tracking and encouraging attendance or different from the people that are doing bilingual outreach. So as you think about your expansion, it's, you know, which things am I working on currently? What are other areas we could work on together? Do I have the right people involved in the conversation for those other things? Or do I need to invite new people into the conversation? And on the account management side, discovery always starts from success to date. Always starts with, hey, we've had a lot of success on Im- improving your average daily, identifying you know challenges, to average daily attendance, communicating to parents, proactively solving those problems. Have you thought about ways that we might work together now in a more targeted way with bilingual households or on academic achievement? Here's a couple of other uh, districts that we've done that with. When we did it, we needed to bring in X, Y, and Z office. Would you be open to having a follow-on conversation and bringing those people in? Well, it strikes me that organization is really key. If you're going to be thorough in expansion, you really need to take time to do planning. You need to spend time in reflection. You need to do your research because you need to understand the market in which they operate, the competitive set they're up against, the competitive product sets, how they're positioned relative to their competition, and what their customers are saying. This is, I believe, the job of uh, an enterprise salesperson. It's not just to go and close. Closing is a symptom of doing all this other stuff, but uh, the emphasis seems to be on either closing or opening but very little about the middle bit, which is where all the real money is. 100% agree with you on people under tap into their installed base. One thing I would say a little bit differently is I don't actually, I'm not sure when you're building your expansion plan that typically all the competitive research, the kind of situation analysis, I've, I've seen a lot of organizations build these account plans to do that. That never get used and never get used well. The bigger opportunity, what you said is you have to recognize you are the incumbent. If you've already delivered value, you have a huge leg up on everybody else. And so what you have to do is just suggest new areas of value. And you have to suggest who we might bring into the conversation. It's a much quicker way 
to that expansion motion. You with the value plays, here are the four ways we drive value. We're having a great result right here, right? I, I, I see it in the measurement. Do you see that in the measurement? You know, are there any, you know, you're getting them as excited about the outcome as you are. For that often connects over here for many of our customers. Is that something we could talk about? So the value plays kind of short circuits because you're already the incumbent. I mean, expansion revenue costs, urban legend is, and I think it has been well documented, costs like 25% of a net new revenue. It's much easier to get. The trust is there. The relationship is there. The success is there. So leverage the heck out of it. The one thing I would challenge or push back on is the reason you do that research is so that you can identify the non-customers, the customers who could be customers, but are not buying at the moment, unmet need and unidentified demand. And with the advent of uh, technologies like ChatGPT, you now have that facility to use it as a creative foil. So it should be used as a catalyst to help you form uh, your hypothesis. Because if you want to get to speak to the senior people, they're not picking up the phone. They're not responding to your dreadful advertising and your tediously dull cold emails. You need to come up with something that enters into their world, penetrates something in their workflow in a unique and original way, and forces them to look at their world through a different lens. Otherwise, you're going to just be one of the many forgotten salespeople who interrupted their day. That I 100% agree with you. When you're doing expansion, the two areas of research that are incredibly valuable are what other initiatives are my buyers working on, which you can see from their business plan or their website or a CEO interview, hugely valuable to come informed about that. And then the second thing is you should go proactively knowing who you want to invite into the conversation. You don't show up and say, you know, hey, could you bring in your director of bilingual homes? Right. You go up showing, hey, I see Rod so-and-so is a director. Is that somebody we can invite in the conversation? So 100 percent agree with your existing customers. There's a lot of valuable research you can do to kind of accelerate that conversation. What I often see is salespeople get very comfortable talking to particular types of uh, mid-level or low-level position. And they're reluctant to speak to people who they need to speak to, who have the authority, the power, the budget. And as a result, they seem to spend a lot of time basically selling in a lottery um, formation. So in the analysis, when you first look at the expansion potential, what advice can you give to sales leaders and management to analyze what the salespeople are really thinking and what they're avoiding because I suspect that would be a very rich vein. And more often than not, it's a psychological block. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is so to your point that we know from Gardner's research that the typical B2B sale has around eight buyers now. And so there are different people with different points of view on why they will or won't work with you. And so whatever your rubric is, we all know, and there's different methodologies out there, but we know there are different buyer roles. I mean, there's somebody who has to be your champion, which is typically a user who can also advocate for budget. There's somebody, one of those senior people that's signing off on a check, right? The economic buyer, there are technical evaluators, users, et cetera. So to the extent that your salespeople, as they're planning that, should be able to tell you 
have a hypothesis, so to speak, on do I know or do I need to know who's filling each of those roles? And do I know or do I need to know what they care about? And to build on Brent's point around the Gartner study, the uh, SRC did a study, I think it was 2019. And what they found was that on average, the number of influencers visited by salespeople in companies of less than 200 employees is 1.72. And of companies of 1,000 plus, 1.65. It actually drops the number of people that salespeople visit and engage with. Tracking engagement is a really powerful score to watch. And it's a very good uh, leading indicator as to the health of deals. So if you're trying to create better pipeline health and better CRM hygiene, again, from the playbook, uh, what sort of cadence of communication should a vendor organization have with their enterprise customers? And how do they uh, create the conditions where the customers welcome them in instead of seeing them as an unwelcome interruption? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, the cadence varies a lot. It seems like we, we've just finished a set of interviews with VPs of CS, customer success, asking exactly this question. And it, you know, it seems like a lot of teams are trending towards your highest value customers. We're going to meet with them quarterly. The kind of the mid, mid, mar, mid or highest potential, the ones in the middle, you know, we'll probably meet with them strategically twice a year, maybe every six or seven months. A lot of the others, they're sort of, I think, moving towards more of a fluid. We don't necessarily have a standing meeting, but where there is the need for an expansion conversation, we'll get into that and set time. I think on your question about how to be valuable, this goes back to an earlier part of our conversation. Even with your existing customers continually sharing content, particularly success stories or blogs that are relevant to new things they might be working on, is hugely valuable. I mean, we know the research. I don't know if this one's from Gardner as well. I don't remember who did it, but they're like, you know, three quarters of customers now prefer virtual meetings. They don't want us showing up in their office. They want efficient interactions as well. So content targeted at specific buyer roles and goals is a great way to share value and then see if people want to opt in to a conversation. And then when we structure those conversations, we have to very consciously start with this, what we talked about earlier, an intentional conversation around where are you seeing value? Where's their opportunity for more value? That can't touch point can't be just, hey, let me tell you more about our product. Let me train you on my product. It's got to be about what are we doing together, right? And how do we get better at that? And if you build a habit of even every customer's interaction is what are we doing? Coming back to the why, what are we doing together? How can we get better at that? Your customers are much more likely to show up. Well, we've got this massive challenge though, that we think that sales, we've been educated to a large degree that sales is something you do to a customer. And we use this language of war and talk about customer or candidate or client control. In my days in recruitment, it was candidate control and client control. In sales, it's about controlling the customer. No one wants to be controlled. 
your reps don't want to be controlled. What they want is to have a voice. They, you know, they, they want their opinions to matter. They want to feel like they're doing important, meaningful work. You're far more likely to get people doing important, meaningful work where they engage in this type of high-quality conversation with their customers and where they're working in partnership with their customers. But culturally, we do pretty much the opposite. We teach people to compete even internally. There's this internecine battle going on between finance and everyone, IT and finance and everyone, sales and marketing, operations and sales. How do we start getting people to work with the customer as a partner and have them drive our behavior? You'll remember from the book, we talk about authentic conversations that anchor on your buyer three times, buyer value, buyer personalization, buyer action. One of these things we say at the very beginning of the book is if you sell this way, you will win a lot faster, you will be much more successful, and you will like your job a lot more because there's less conflict. You're going to learn more. So the good news about this approach is honestly, the rest of my organization could be in selling 2.0 mode. And I'll say in a second what I mean by that. I mean, this old world where buyers are, where sellers are supposed to be in charge, everybody could be doing that. You can still move to this 3.0 world where your whole purpose is every interaction is to start with your buyer or customer's why and purpose. You, you can do that as an individual producer. You just need to shift your mindset and the way you inter- interact with your customers and in your individual conversations, and, and you'll win more. We are definitely on the point you raise. I mean, I think of, you probably know Todd Capone's work. He talks about the professionalization of selling and that, you know, the sales 1.0 world where, you know, we were in charge in charge by virtue of controlling all the information, yeah. right? It's sort of, we controlled the information. That was phase one. And that was true for probably 80 or 90 years until like the early 2010s when the explosion of social media and the internet, it wasn't that long ago, shifted it to now buyers were in charge because they could go to G2, they could go to your website, go to the competitor's website. They already had all the information they needed on you. And unfortunately, exactly at the time we needed to shift towards more of a buyer-centric world, you had a tripling of sales methodology, starting with Challenger and a bunch of others that basically taught sellers, you need to you need to teach Taylor to take control. You need to be in charge. So we had this 2.0 world, which is just getting finer and finer at managing and micromanaging the buyer at exactly the wrong time. When what we needed to be doing was training people to shift their mindset to being a guide, right? You guide your buyer to the right next step or not, and you give them an out. And the mindset shift, if you want to be a top performer, in today's environment is focus on your buyer, your customer, three times in every conversation. Come back to their why, their value, personalize your conversation to them and figure out what actions they will take next. And you will win a lot more and you'll like your job more. See, it's not just me for a change. That's excellent. Okay. Um, Brent, we've come to uh, close to the top of the hour. Um, So a couple of uh, wrap up questions then. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Brent, age 23. What would you whisper in his ear by way of advice that you know he'd have probably have ignored, but um, would uh, benefit the listeners? Yeah, I I would say 
you know, stick to your purpose, right? Stick to your purpose. And I say that in the context of starting a business where it was easy to take the cash rather than double down on taking the ideal buyer. I mean, a lot of the friction for me in starting business, I knew what we did really well, but it was easy to take cash and dollars from these different places and build a team that support it. It's just stupid. So if you figure out what you do really well, just stick to your purpose on doing that well and maintain the faith that it will get you to where you're going a lot faster than getting sidetracked by the voices about, you know, how, how to be more successful. Yeah, interesting. I mean, at 23, I don't think I'd have been able to make that leap, but uh, it's good advice. Okay. And what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to that will help them uh, move towards um, a, a thought process where they think as the customer instead of about what you can do to them or get from them? Yeah. So there's a bunch of books that have come out in the last few years that are all in this buyer first genre. You mentioned our book, The Revenue Acceleration Playbook, would recommend to folks. Uh, Todd Capone's work is great. The Transparency Sale uh, is a guy more on the marketing side, Marcus Sheridan, who wrote a book called You Ask, We Answer, that's also on the transparency. There's a woman named Carol Mahoney who's coming out with a book called Buyer First that actually may be there are probably some others, but I do think you made the point. I, I have said before, like you had a whole generation of sellers that were trained in the wrong way. A lot of the resources are still in the wrong way. So I think finding three or four of these books, you know, actually, if you're a leader, buy them for your team, read them together, talk about them, uh, get some resources that can help thinking about buyer first and, um, you know, start to internalize it. So those would be some of my suggestions. I would add Trust-Based Selling by Charlie Green. I think that's his best book by far. There actually is a book, Sell Without Selling. Yeah, Andy Paul, Sell Without Selling Out. Oh, yeah. And uh, Demand Side Sales by Bob Master is a must. And it will give you a really good introduction to the buyer's journey. And when it's appropriate and inappropriate to have a sales conversation, because most of the time, sales should be having a non-sales conversation. If they're smart and they capture the conversation with the buyer when they are in the passive looking stage or making space, then when they move into active looking, you're probably the only show in town if you've handled that well. And you've already got your expansion sales, two, three, four, five, and six lined up. If anyone does want to talk about that, then uh, obviously they can get hold of you. How can they do that? Best way would be just connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, oh. They're also welcome to email me directly, uh, bkeltner at winalytics.com, W-I-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S.com. Either of those. LinkedIn's probably easier. There's only one Brent Keltner that I'm aware of on there. <laughs> Excellent. Actually, the other book is The Wentworth Manifesto, which I think is really very good. Um, and that's uh, a parable about selling to enterprise and expansion. So very useful. Brent, one final question then. I'm curious about your thoughts about how the sales profession is going to have to adapt um, because buyers now are incredibly well informed. And with the advent of uh, AI technologies, they are now able to deconstruct your pricing 
they can look at supply chain, they can do all sorts of amazing things. I've been conducting interviews with purchasing professionals and they're really well prepared, or many of them will be. And we have to change our game completely, I believe, in response, because if we don't, we're going to be become effectively extinct. So how do you see the sales profession needing to adapt and uh, where do we need to professionalize? I think it's around this these books that we just riffed through, which is anchor on your buyer customer first. Always start with what they value, why they're buying from you. That's building that skill, right? It's not about managing our sales process that, that comes in, but it's leading with the buyer journey and the buyer process, that skill. And I would just also add that, you know, old white guys like us, a lot of them can't make the shift. Um, what I'm seeing is I think a lot of, Top performers are increasingly women. They're increasingly kind of younger generations. And I'm one of the awesomest trends in go-to-market strategy now is looking at revenue-oriented CS teams, working with a bunch of them that they once upon a time didn't like to talk about money. They just seeing more and more that this is all about value expansion, right? Mm. This is all about finding new ways. And I'm not going to give you a hard sell, but I'm going to introduce new ways that we can work on together. I think Honestly, strategic CS teams are going to gobble up a lot of the sales roles. You don't need account management, right? So I think those are some shifts that are coming that um, it's all good. I mean, competition is good for all of us. On that happy note, Brent Keltner, thank you. Thanks so much, Marcus. Really enjoyed the conversation. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Do leave us an honest review on whichever podcast channel you uh, use as well. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus, at last-last.com, and there will be a link in the blurb if you want to book 15 minutes free with me uh, to talk about how you want your career in sales to give you all the things in life that you want. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye.